Hi, everyone, and welcome to another ICM and Next Collaboration podcast. My name is Rahul Costa-Pinto. I'm an intensivist at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, and an ESICM Next committee member. Joining me today is Professor Glenn Hernandez, Director of the Department of Intensive Care Medicine, and Dr. Eduardo Catan, Intensive Care Specialist at the Pontificia Universidad Católica de Chile in Santiago. We will be talking about their recent ICM publication, a narrative review entitled Current Practice and Evolving Concepts in Septic Shock Resuscitation. Glenn and Eduardo, welcome to the program and congratulations on this very thorough and informative review. Thank you very much, uh, Rahul, for uh, this invitation. We are very proud of it and happy to collaborate with this uh, initiative. Thank you, Raul, for the invitation. We're, we're very happy to be here and to participate in this podcast. And we're also very happy for the, for the publication. It was a one-year-long work with many people around. So it was, we were very glad to see it finally on paper. <laughs> Excellent. So I'd encourage everyone listening to this podcast to read this paper in full. But, um, you know, having both of you here today, I thought I'd focus on some of the, what I felt were the more interesting concepts you've discussed in this paper. So I guess my first question to both of you is around tissue perfusion parameters. As we know, capillary refill time to guide resuscitation was a new addition to the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines last year. Where do you see the role of measuring other tissue perfusion parameters, such as arterial venous PCO2 difference, and central venoarterial CO2 to arteriovenous oxygen content ratio? Okay, I, I think I, I, we strongly believe in a multimodal assessment of tissue perfusion, or of variables related to tissue perfusion. Capillary refill time has been validated by observational physiological uh, studies that demonstrate a strong association with uh, mortality when it, it does not improve after uh, early resuscitation. And uh, the Andromeda shock study validated this as a, as a, as a very uh, uh, relevant target for resuscitation since normalization of capillary refill time co as compared to lactate was associated with less mortality, uh, less organ dysfunction, and less uh, intervention because it's a, it's a very fast responsive variable that represents flow and adrenergic tone. And when you look at capillary refill time at, at, at skin perfusion, what you're looking at is that the ischemia reperfusion process, so when the, the skin gets warm and, 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 and the capillary refill time normalized, the modeling disappears, you are sure that you restored flow. And it has been demonstrated also that it's, it's, this improvement goes in parallel with the rest, in the restoration of flow to more important territories like the hepatosplatinic region because it's the same neurohumoral response that gets the flow away from this territory. So capillary refill time has a hierarchical role. But if you combine this with other variables, such as the delta PCO2, as you ask it, I think the delta PCO2 is a very relevant variable because, uh, uh, as we know from the physiology, it has an inverse relationship with cardiac output and systemic blood flow. So um, it, I think when you have an abnormal capillary refill time or peripheral perfusion and a prolonged delta PCO2, venous arterial PCO2 gradient, this means that you have space 
to act on cardiac output and systemic blood flow, and maybe this um, increases the chances that you get reperfusion. If you have a normal PCO2 gradient, maybe the probability that pushing cardiac output that it will result there, the, the hypoperfusion is lower. So it can be combined. You know, it's, this is very interesting concept. I think the, the ratio between the, the, the PCO2 difference and the a, a arterial venous O2 difference is another matter. It's not for common clinical use. It has been also proposed surrogate, surrogate of hypoxia. We used eventually to interpret a persistent hyperlactatemia. You have a prolonged ratio, an increased ratio. Maybe this lactate has, is probably hypoxic. And if you have a normal ratio, the lactate is probably non-hypoxic related. So it can help you occasionally with that. But I think it's, it's almost restricted to the research arena because it also, it's also a controversial uh, issue. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, I guess my next question is now about um, management and treatment. So the concomitant initiation of a vasopressor with fluid resuscitation in septic shock has shown short-term mortality benefit in observational and randomized trials. In what clinical situations um, would you guys commence a vasopressor early for septic shock resuscitation? I think this, uh, Rahul, this has to do, to, to do with um, uh, hemodynamic phenotypes. We have been working in these concepts because um, you can have a hypotensive patient, a septic hypotensive patient in shock, but you, have, you can see in the monitor at, at the beginning different patterns. For example, you have, if you have a pressure of 80 to 60, you have a very low pulse pressure and you have a problem with the stroke volume. So you have to assess fluid responsiveness and, the, and, 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 and see if the patient is fluid responsive, you get fluids and maybe if not, you, can, you have to look at the heart if there is a cardiac dysfunction. But if you have, for example, 80 to 30, you have a normal pulse pressure. The patient is also hypotensive, but in this case, you have a profound vasoplasia. Uh, and we described recently the diastolic shock index uh, to assess this more objectively. So I, I think the, the response is the following. If you have a patient with the predominantly diastolic hypotension, diastolic blood pressure lower than 50, or an increased diastolic shock index, uh, then you should uh, start vasopressors early because the vascular tone does not recover with fluids. And you should restrict fluids to patient that is fluid responsive and, that's, and has probably a low pulse pressure. This is, we're going to test this hypothesis in Andromeda shock to study. But also, in addition to this, uh, if you start vasopressors early, you shorten the period of critical hypotension. For example, you have a MAP less than 50. You should start simultaneously in parallel fluids and vasopressor to shorten this uh, extreme uh, period of hypotension that has been related to mortality. That's a, that's a great answer. Thank, thanks, Glenn. My next question is more about, you know, moving on from that initial resuscitation phase. Now, we know with um, the stages of septic shock resuscitation, we have the, the concepts of the salvage stage, the resuscitation, stabilization, and de-escalation stages, and they're now all well-described, and you talk about them in your paper. 
What do you see are the important questions still to answer on the timing of fluid removal in the stabilization and de-escalation phases in septic shock? Yeah, thanks Raul. That's such an interesting question. I believe that this is a hot topic in the resuscitation research agenda and the S and D phases from the SOSD concept will probably receive much focus in the coming years. Uh, especially when both uh, stages are quite important determinants for fluid overload, spontaneous breathing trial success, and winning from mechanical ventilation. As such, uh, the best strategy to de-escalate from recess uh, remains to be seen. Should we aim at fixed negative balance? Should we privilege uh, loop diuretics or mechanical fluid remotion? Or should we search as we do during the acute resuscitation phase for physiological safety targets of de-resuscitation uh, regarding cardiopulmonary interaction, for example. Uh, along with Glenn and Ricardo Castro, one of our colleagues from, from our hospital, we're currently conducting a, a randomized trial uh, trying to compare these strategies and their impact on both different organ function and clinically relevant outcomes. And the, the second aspect I wanted to, to stress or addressing this question is that uh, when we are conducting the resuscitation phase, namely the salvage and optimization phase, we cannot only focus on flow increasing maneuvers, but also the side effects of our, our interventions, namely uh, fluid administration. And in this sense, uh, an interesting concept that has emerged recently is the fluid tolerance concept that has been defined as the degree in which a patient can tolerate fluid administration without causing directly organ dysfunction. And how to bring it to the bedside, we can operationally understand it as a multimodal monitoring of the fluid induced harm in different systems, such as respiratory, renal, and cardiovascular system. But not uh, like an ex post or after resuscitation, but during the resuscitation process. Uh, so during this process, we're not only looking at the forward flow and the impact in perfusion from our fluids, but also in the back end or the back, the back flow, as you could call it, uh, of our intervention. And even though it still has to be matured and operationalized, uh, it's a potential research focus uh, that may allow clinicians to modify their resuscitation strategies and provide a more harmonic resuscitation. That's that, that, that's really interesting to hear. Thanks, Eduardo. Um, I just want to focus again on vasopressors and, and a topic close to my heart is what do you see as the role of alternative vasopressors to noradrenaline? So particularly in patients at risk or having developed acute kidney injury. And the other group is in patients with refractory shock. Thanks, Raul. That's an amazing question. Uh, and I would, I would like to start answering by the end uh, and stressing the difficulty of grasping a common definition to refractory shock, uh, even though it might be quite intuitive. And for people who work in the ICU scenario, uh, when you see the literature, uh, it provides a myriad of definitions that are quite diverse for refractory uh, shock. And most of them just focus on operationalizing by uh, providing a vasopressor limit uh, dosing. But we know that uh, multiple factors can uh, impact on vasopressor dosing, including sedation practices, mechanical ventilation settings, fluid administrations, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the interesting points of this uh, narrative review uh, was to present the concept of 
refractory shock, not only as a fixed dose of vasopressors, but also including the, the inability of the resuscitative, resuscitative interventions to restore tissue hyperperfusion. And also in table three, we, we listed potential factors that could exacerbate or perpetuate a refractory shock. And, and, and saying that, uh, and coming back to the original question, uh, there, as, as you know, there's a wide variety of practice throughout the world regarding the use of alternative or additive uh, vasopressor therapies over uh, norepinephrine, and which only uh, not respond to only the best evidence that we have, but also to local availability of drugs, cost, organizational culture, and clinical experience with uh, such drugs. Uh, in as such, uh, at least in our hospital and in our practice with, with, with Glenn, uh, when we are confronted to the decision of starting another vasoactive uh, medication, just either vasopressors such as vasopressin, uh, inodilators or adrenaline, um, what we do in a, in a pragmatic uh, way is try to obtain a, a more thorough hemodynamic picture of what's happening to our patient. Uh, for example, uh, perform cardiac output monitoring, either by echo or through no, uh, more invasive techniques, such as a PICO monitor. Uh, in this way, we can determine what is the predominant pattern uh, affecting this individual. This is vasoplegia, is it a, a cardiac dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in, in, in as such, we can uh, allow us to, to titrate our interventions, uh, measure objectively and in real time the impact of either positive or negative of the mixture of uh, drugs and uh, decide further conducts as salvage therapies. Um, at least is, that is how we do it uh, back here. And, and I would like to know how, how, how do you, or what's your take on this, on this question or in this topic? I think it's, um, it's an important area of, area of research. Um, and you really touched, you know, your answer really um, covers a lot of bases. Um, I'm particularly interested in the role of, you know, vasopressin um, to attenuate uh, or, you know, in some cases prevent acute kidney injury. Um, and I suppose, you know, as, as you've mentioned in the paper, other alternative vasopressors which haven't really received any, um, uh, you know, significant research up to this point, such as, you know, methylene blue um, would be another vasopressor that I'd, I'm interested in because it's, it's, it's um, something that we very rarely use in, in clinical practice. Um, and it'd be interesting to see if it does have an additive benefit in patients who are on not necessarily very high doses of noradrenaline, but even, you know, moderate doses of noradrenaline. Um, you've, already touched on this a little bit, um, Eduardo, with your answer, talking about optimizing cardiac function. And we know that that may be a benefit in some septic shock patients. In your paper, you describe an inodilator test, um, which I'm interested in. How do you select which patients are likely to benefit from inotropes and, and using that inodilator test and the timing of that inotrope initiation? Yeah, um, thanks for this question, Rahul. Um, you remember the, the paper of Antoine Villar-Baron where they described it with, uh, uh, in a retro, retrospective study with, by transesophageal echocardiography, five uh, hemodynamic phenotypes um, of cardiac dysfunction, 20% uh, abnormal, the, the other four are, are abnormal. You remember this hypovolemic, 
basoplegic hyperdynamic or left or right ventricle failure. And so you, you have a myriad of situations in the heart. And um, there is a lot of controversy now. I think you you make a survey around the world, 50% of the intensive, they say, ah, we use dobutamine sometimes uh, without looking at the heart, or sometimes we look at the heart, we use uh, dobutamine even in, in mild forms of uh, left ventricular dysfunction, etc. But the other half will say, no, no way. And um, our, I think it was very difficult to get a consensus in the paper, in the current practice, because there were um, uh, opposite uh, visions about this aspect. I think that uh, the, the, the most, um, I think, that, uh, let's say, the, the strongest consensus was in the use of dobutamine in patients with severe left ventricular dysfunction demonstrated by echo. Uh, meaning, uh, for example, a BDI of less than 14 or, or an ejection fraction, and, sorry, an ejection fraction less, less than 40, as proposed by the French intensivists, for example. Then you are sure, and then you try the butamine, understanding that the butamine is a, a, it's a little, the, the balance between benefit and risk is, it's, it's sort of uh, uh, complex because it's prone to produce hypotension, arrhythmias, it increased the uh, myocardial oxygen consumption. So it's a, uh, people, I am not sure if people are aware that this is a potentially dangerous drug. So you have to titrate it very slowly and okay. Another more controversial issue is the use of the butamine just to increase tissue perfusion, taking advantage of this vasodilator activity in the periphery as has been proposed for more than two decades uh, since the, the, the time of gastric tonometry, more recently with sublingual microcirculation that the butamine in doses, low doses, two, four mics that do not increase cardiac output, they could eventually benefit hepatosplanic or microcirculatory perfusion of flow. This, the, the evidence for this is uh, highly weak, I would say, and you can eventually use it if you have ruled out a significant cardiac dysfunction that could be worsened by dobutamine, for example, a hyperdynamic uh, ventricle or with takotsubo, etc., or, or an empty ventricle. Uh, but in this case, if you have persistent hyperperfusion and you get fluids and, and you could not resolve this and you have increased the maximum the, the perfusion pressure, you could use dobutamine in very low doses, two, four mics for one hour and look at perfusion. If you see that the skin improves, the patient starts peeing, etc. So you, you demonstrated real benefit, you can continue. Otherwise, you stop. This is the concept of a test. You just don't order dobutamine and come up the next day, oh, dobutamine, no, no, no. You have to assess because it, it is a potentially dangerous drug. Yeah, I, I agree with that very, very strongly. Um, my final question, and we've, we've already touched on some of the, um, you know, the research areas, um, in these evolving concepts in septic shock resuscitation. So I suppose um, having Eduardo, as you said, spent a year putting this, this paper together uh, with a multitude of authors, what do you think are our most pressing research priorities from here? Well, that's, that's a great last question, right, Glenn? Um, for me, uh, I, I would take my, I, I would place my bets on, on individualization of therapy and clinically 
phenotyping the septic shock patients. As we have seen in the literature in the recent years has shown, uh, we have a quite heterogeneous background of patients with different comorbidities, different presentations, and different hemodynamic profiles. So we're in a stage that looking to the future uh, and trying to uh, individualize the therapy that we could offer these patients, I believe that could be a key to improve outcomes even more uh, from a clinical standpoint. Uh, and in, in uh, um, Glenn, would you, would you like to compliment? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think that also uh, in, in the term of, uh, uh, in the setting of refractory shock, we have a lot of work to do, which are the best rescue therapy, try to understand the pathophysiological mechanisms that are behind a refractory hypotension. Uh, sometimes it's the heart, sometimes it's the periphery, sometimes it's just uh, endothelial dysfunction, activation of coagulation, there are a series of conditions some of them can be eventually improved at least a little bit with uh, acting on the macro hemodynamics, let's say, but others clearly not, especially when the patient has lost hemodynamic coherence or coupling between the macro and the microcirculation. And then uh, maybe the future is for immunomodulatory techniques such as uh, cytokine absorption, hemofiltration, uh, or others that could eventually act on the inflammatory response at the endothelial and microcirculatory level. There is a lot of research in patients that, of course, and of course, reassessing the, the, the source, etc. But there is a lot of work on that, starting maybe, I think, with a, a consensus definition, because you see so many crazy definitions in the literature, so it's difficult to make research with this. So I, I think this is a lot of work to do in that field. Glenn and, and Eduardo, thank you so much for taking the time um, to join me on this podcast today. I feel it's been as informative and thorough as um, the paper you guys have written. So thank you very much. I think our listeners are going to benefit greatly from, um, from listening to what you guys have had to say today about septic shock resuscitation and um, reading your narrative review in intensive care medicine. So thank you both once again. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye -bye. Thank you very much, Raul.